Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Forge from Uncanny X-Men number 186, a story called Life Death. And joining us for the discussion is Andrew DeMann. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Andrew, you're a very natural guest to have on to talk about this era of X-Men comic books, because you have a rather significant project ongoing, looking at a lot of the Claremont written x-men comic books would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about that uh sure we we have a so it it was an academic project um so it originally started as doing a bunch of data analysis on the claremont run which is something you started in your book when you did some content analysis Mm -hmm. um and i want to do the same thing but a little bit more um um, expansive on that same idea uh so we um counted a whole bunch of stuff in claremont's x-men and then we started Mm -hmm. to build out a social media feed uh, and now it's this this all-consuming thing where I have to think of a, a Claremont run thread every day, but I kind of love it. So I'm I'm really really happy to be here. Yes, uh, and what is the uh, the Twitter handle for your Claremont run thread where you share uh, this at Claremont Run? Okay, yeah, uh, and Claremont. our website is um, www.claremontrun.com. That's where you'll find all of our raw data. And I really do enjoy the kind of threads that you put together because you'll do stuff like uh, here's the characters that get the most thought balloons, you know, in, in in during the Claremont run, which says something about the interiority, you know, who who are we actually yeah. seeing inside of and, th- and things like that. Uh, or you'll uh, like kind of encapsulate someone's, you know, uh, an, an essay that might have been published in like the Journal of Popular Culture and you'll kind of encapsulate it in a series of tweets like here. Here's a very brief, you know, rundown <laughs> of this, but it, it, may, it gives people a taste of the kind of research that's being done on the X-Men and Claremont's era of the X-Men in particular. Yeah, that was the goal to do something um, that was unique to social media by being like, like really uniquely holistic. Um, again, just a multi-year, everyday project. And as you said, sometimes we're quoting stuff, sometimes we're building context, sometimes we're doing analysis, and sometimes it's a chart. Um, so you, you're getting every possible angle to form this sort of parallax perspective on a run that was, you know, 16 years, the, the biggest mm-hmm. in Marvel history, that requires multiple different angles to come close to understanding it. Yeah, I think at this point, most of our listeners, if you're a regular listener, you've heard us talk about the Claremont era of the X-Men, but he is really definitive for what the general public's like perception of the X-Men are. Uh, Chris Claremont's era is hugely formative um, for the adaptations that have come even at this point, decades after his run ended yeah. so much is looking back to this particular era when the X-Men rose from being very much, uh, I mean, generously, I'd say a B-list Marvel title, but probably C-list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah that's fair. Uh, and, and became one of the most successful franchises in comic book history under uh, Claremont's consecutive run i I can't remember exactly how many issues it is do you have that number at your beck and call (laughs) that he wrote it depends on how you define the issues right because you count annuals or miniseries to those yeah yeah roughly 97 to 278 Mm -hmm. um and in that 16 years, he was the, you know, pretty much the sole voice that was guiding the adventures of the X-Men. This issue that we're talking about today, uh, number 186, uh, was written by Chris Claremont, but Barry Windsor Smith also gets a story credit. And yeah. Barry Windsor Smith is the uh, penciler, and it had inks by Terry Austin, colors by Glynis Ween, and Christy Scheel. And it was lettered by Tom Orzichow. 
Orzachowski and uh, edited by Anna Senti and Peter Sanderson. And it tells the story of the mutant Forge helping Storm to convalesce after her powers have been taken from her. Side note, her powers were taken from her by a weapon that Forge had designed and built, but Storm doesn't know <laughs> that yet. Forge is working through some of his own guilt slash attraction to to Storm, which is always a healthy mix that you see fairly often in the X-Men comics, I would say. (laughs) I'm attracted to you, but I got a dark secret, you know, that that kind of thing going on. Um, A little bit of trivia about Forge. This is a character that was created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. And he first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 184. So just really right before this issue is really going to delve deep into who Forge is. Uh, but this is, I think, the character's third appearance um, in in any capacity, and he has a central uh, role in this. And this is something that Claremont would occasionally do where there's a pretty expansive cast of X-Men characters at this point um, that, you know, they, these are all characters they could pick up and choose to do a story to focus on. But then every now and then he'll have like fairly recently created a character or he's introducing a character and he really gives that character a starring role that, that feels um, extremely prominent for the audience's, you know, lack of familiarity with this character at, at that moment. Yeah. Um, I and think it, that's fair to say, I, I think he does it with Gambit as well. Right. Uh, yes. And I, I'm sure there are a few others. Um, and what happens is at first it can be a little jarring, but then, yeah. You know, years later, like Forge is a fairly integral member of the X-Men, you know, of the X-Men universe. He shows up in multiple X-Men team books. Uh, it just I, I do remember, though, like as I was going through reading this era, it's like, oh, that's a really <laughs> deep dive on this brand new character um, that yeah. be, because Claremont's did doing that work and like really introducing a lot of facets of the character. That character does it does somewhat become someone who the audience um ends up being fascinated by i think at the time maybe it feels a little bit like did we just break the real story for the side character <laughs> <laughs> but in the sprawling nature of, of marvel comics sometimes those side characters become central later on yeah i mean forge will eventually go on to uh, functionally lead what is left of the x-men mm-hmm. uh, um, i mean in a few later um, and years. he's also going to be showing up in like x-factor and x-force so multiple x-team books he'll he'll be showing up in at different points um and yeah, it, it, like I said, so much of what is the X-Men continuity and the characters that we recognize as X-Men, you got to go back to, to this Claremont era. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I think as you were intimating too, like one of the things that Claremont did extraordinarily well was he kind of got, I would say, bored with his own characters and he tried to rotate <laughs> them out. Yeah. Uh, and, and like normally that's a terrible idea, but like intellectual property is a thing and <laughs> there are consequences when you deviate from it. <laughs> but I mean, shortly after this this era, a mutant massacre happens, and, and he takes out Nightcrawler, Kitty, and Colossus from the X Men in essentially one issue. Mm-hmm. Mind boggling. But then he launches to replace them: Longshot, Salvage's Dazzler, and Psylocke, uh, who've all become iconic characters in their own right. Yeah, and um, I think there's a a boldness to that storytelling uh, yeah. that definitely feels part of um, like the confidence that Claremont had because this was his corner of the, of the Marvel universe. No one cared about the X-Men when he took it over. Uh, he made it into something special, but there was a lot of trust put in him because, uh, because he had been so successful as a writer. And so he's willing to do those kind of bold strokes that feel like if like there's a new writer coming on, it's not like I'm going to introduce four new characters right now <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and they're going to become fan favorites. It's like, no, how about we go with what's familiar <laughs> uh, and, and stick with that. But, but Claremont is definitely willing to, uh, mix things up very considerably. 
Yeah, I've said before that if you pick any year from the Claremont run, um, again, any of his 16 years, you're likely to find more status quo changes than you'll find in any decade of X-Men writing since. Uh, <laughs> like, again, he, he just he didn't like status quo. This is actually what got him kicked off the book eventually. Um, he, he just he didn't want to tell the same old stories again. And Marvel was like, well, could you please? Because that's what, what people think they're buying when they buy X-Men. And I think it was in part he had become like his own success kind of doomed him because mm. when he took over the X-Men, there were no cartoons about the X-Men. There were no merchandise of the X-Men in particular costumes um, like it, it just was this very low selling comic book. Uh, but due to the popularity that occurred during his tenure as X-Men writer, there started to be those things. And the nature of corporate storytelling is, well, if we have an adaptation that's going to reach a larger audience there and they may come to pick up a comic book, we want the comic book to look like that adapt- adaptation. We want those characters to be appearing. We want uh, at, at least echoes of some stories that they may be familiar with to be happening. And Claremont's like, well, I already told all those stories. <laughs> I've said what I wanted to say about those characters. Can I do something else? Yeah. And it's so fundamental too, because like the thing that Claremont made X-Men into was a soap opera, which depends Mm -hmm. upon what's called romantic consumption, right? Things Mm -hmm. need to change in order for it to be a soap opera. Uh, So the idea that you would look at that and think, I want to just, just freeze everything in place. You're sort of missing the point. Um, (laughs) At at least in my eyes, right? Because you've taken away the thing that, that made it special in order to attempt to preserve what makes it special. Yeah, it's uh, I think that's something that comic books in general struggle with um, is how do we present that illusion of change, but also keep it familiar enough that yeah. anyone can pick it up and feel like they know what they're getting. Um, and it, you, you see like variations on how they're going to do that, like the whole DC's been kind of stuck in 20 year cycles of, OK, we're rebooting back to basics every 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and the basics is what it kind of everyone already knows about the characters but you end up throwing away like 20 years of kind of interesting stories and evolutions of characters. It's like, no, no, we got to go reset. Um, and I think the X-Men uh, when, when Claremont's leaves, like we're kind of at the tail end of that 20 year, <laughs> you know, you know, we're heading towards that 20 year mark of like, okay, we get, we need, we need the basics. <laughs> we need, uh, you know, what, what people know. Um, a little bit more trivia. So Forge, uh, the character is a member of the Cheyenne Nation and a mutant with the gift for designing and building technology. He would go on to become a, ve- a member of various X teams in the Marvel comics. But at this point, we only know him as the designer uh, of mili- basically military tech for the United States government for mm-hmm. S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and he's <laughs> picked up the contracts after Tony Stark has sworn off making weapons, <laughs> which is something that Tony Stark does periodically in Marvel Comics. Uh, and and they introduce Forge as like someone who has stepped into the Tony Stark role. And when we meet Forge, he has a cybernetic leg and also a hand. And we'll learn he lost uh, those in a battle in Vietnam, though. I'm wondering, like with Marvel sliding timescale, is that now Afghanistan <laughs> that? Yeah. Uh, in, in the 80s, there were a lot of characters who had origins rooted to Vietnam. And for many of those, it's now become like a vague Afghanistan war is is what <laughs> it, what we're linking their origins to. Um, again, like the comic books run into different narrative problems than some other mediums <laughs> as yes. they're, uh, you know, the, sometimes the, the adaptations are more popular than the source material. So the source material actually has to adapt to where the adaptations are doing. Uh, there's the fact that these stories have been going on for, uh, you know, more than 60 years <laughs> or, or 80 years in some instances, uh, that can really affect like, well, when, when did these actually happen? Cause they, you know, when you're writing this in 19, uh, 80, is this one 84? I, I forgot to put down the, the date when this one was published. Yeah. Between 82 and 84. Yeah. Somewhere there. Oh, like making a, a reference to Vietnam would be completely natural, but now it feels fairly <sighs> dated. 
Well, Magneto's still a Holocaust survivor, and that that, that raises some problems mathematically. <laughs> well, they did de-age him to a baby at one point. That's <laughs> that true. Kind of That's a, true. That allows so a good. lot of wiggle room. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, last bit of trivia. This one is a double-sized issue. And I will just say, it's a very significant tonal departure from yes. what the, the X-Men, like the romantic adventure side of the X-Men. This one very soap operatic that side of x-men is definitely uh you know front and center here but the x-men is a team book and this is for probably four-fifths of the issue is just storm and forge having conversations uh, <laughs> yeah. with each other and some you know some some things that are done to make the settings really interesting as, as they have these conversations but this main storyline of the plot is is really just two people getting to know each other yeah and very mature very intimate feel Mm-hmm. We leave behind the adventure uh, for the most part. There's one subplot about dire wraiths, which <laughs> is a thing that you'll never see in X-Men comics again because it was a licensed property uh, that was introducing the dire wraiths as a kind of an invasion threat for Earth. Yep, um, a toy Paul line, had li- you know, there, there was a license with a toy company that was trying to do make Rom Space Knight, the big toy. <laughs> and the Those dire were good are... books, though, I should point out. The yes, Rom you just Space can't find Night them books? anymore they because of the way the contracts work. <laughs> Yeah. Unless it was one of the crossover books. Like you can find the diaries popping up in a lot of Marvel books from this, this year. Yeah. You just can't find the ROM space night books very much. Which is tragic. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to the full summary of this issue, uh, listeners, we would like to thank you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who consume or uh, support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Uh, Andrew, I forgot to ask. Do you remember how you came to the X-Men? I've shared my X-Men origin story several times in the podcast, so I won't rehash that again. But do you remember when you came to the X-Men? Yeah, I was um, a teenager. I, I think we were in the, the Jim Lee era. We were right about Extinction Agenda, mm-hmm. um, which is, I mean, stunning artwork era, convoluted plot era. Um, but it, it was sort of right before the big, big buzz around X-Men with the animated series. Um, fell in love with it. And um, uh, it was the first comic I ever bought. And I thought, wow, comics are really well written. Um, and, and then I started to read around um, outside of Claremont and be like, oh, maybe not as much as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So uh, I ended up um, coming back to comics uh, as a doctoral candidate at the University of Waterloo um, because I was I, I was doing well. I was winning awards and stuff as an American poetry expert, but I was bored out of my mind. Um, and I felt like I didn't want to devote my career slash life um, to studying something that wasn't really inspiring me anymore and that I felt had been already studied to death. Um, so I went back to my comic book collection uh, over Thanksgiving and I thought this was really cool. Uh, and then after that, I went to my um, um, my graduate supervisors and I said, can I do this instead? And they were kind of screwed at this point because they had already taken me in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my tuition check had cleared. Uh, so they were like, yeah, fine. Uh, <laughs> I've been studying <laughs> X-Men comics ever since. Oh, that is uh, the timeline of that really uh, is pretty close to my timeline of X-Men uh, discovering the X-Men and, and having an X-Men title be my very first issue and then kind of circling back to it in grad school. Yeah, I, I won't lie. I discovered your book after I had finished my dissertation uh, and, and I was I was infuriated to find out <laughs> that 
you could write a, a brilliant dissertation just on X-Men, <laughs> that we were allowed to do that. Had you done a broader uh, study of comics for, <laughs> yes, for your yes. major project? Yeah, my dissertation um, became my first book, which was The Margins of Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was just about um, representations of race, gender, um, and the sort of social category of the geek in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it was just like academic, semiotic speak in order to get through the hurdles that were presented to me. Um, so I, I, I didn't love it as much. Uh, I don't no, know. I, I, I'm familiar with that process that you're describing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when your supervisor's like, can you put in this book? And you're like, yeah. that has nothing to do with anything I'm talking about. And they're like, yeah, but I read it over the weekend and it was really good. And you're like, okay, fine. <laughs> all right. If I'm going to get this degree, in it goes. Yeah. <laughs> don't have a lot of choice here, but all right. <laughs> but my supervisors were nice. They, they, they took me in um, and allowed me to do comics, even though they didn't have great familiarity with the subject. So I can't complain. But I, I, one thing that I do really enjoy about um, like the the social media side of, of the Clamor Run that you share is it I think it makes academic research really accessible um, for a lot of pop culture studies. You're trying to ride that line of serving, I think, multiple masters of like, is does this feel rigorous uh, and uh, is it advancing a field of study? But also uh, is someone who's interested in the thing I'm studying would be interested in this. And I, I think sometimes both sides like look down on the other side like oh that's just academic yeah. or oh that's too popular <laughs> yeah. and, exactly and i think that accessibility is actually like a selling point that's something we should be striving for as academics yeah um, and i'm sure you know we have the term knowledge dissemination being you know thrown around all over the place but there's a question about how sincere the demand for that really is within the academy um a lot of times as you said when, when you're connecting to a broader audience the academy seems to feel like you're selling out um, which is a little frustrating, the idea that we're, we're not allowed to come out of the ivory tower a little bit. So yeah, I'm trying to take some of the, the sort of um, cloistered academic ideas and then make them accessible and give them a broader range and scope. Um, and so far, so good. Yeah, at least from what I see, it's, I mean, it seems like you have built an audience for uh, the Claremont run on Twitter. Yeah, I was, I was thrilled. Um, X Twitter, as you know, is fantastic. It's just a really wonderful community. So being able to um, interact um, with people who love the X-Men the way that I love the X-Men is, is really, really boying. Uh, it is a wonderful fandom. Like I, yeah. I love the X-Men side. I mean, it's not all great, but <laughs> and they're never there's all the great. corners of every fandom, but. <laughs> but like I look over the sort of um, over the fence at the like Doctor Who fandom or certain video game fandoms and I'm like, oh shit, I'm in the right place. Well, at least I mean we we haven't had some of the well, I, mean, I guess we have had the moments of like how do we reckon like Joss Whedon with our fandoms? <laughs> yeah. uh, fortunately, uh, for the bulk <laughs> of the X Men, we're, we're we're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, on to the summary for this particular issue of the X Men. So, in the previous issue that had been published, over Forge's protestations, a weapon he had designed to remove a mutant's powers was taken and used, and it was intended to be used against Rogue. However, in the battle, Storm was accidentally hit and now cannot access her weather-based powers or feel her connection to the Earth. This uh, issue opens with the text box, Once upon a time, there was a woman who could fly. Beneath this text box, we see Storm in bed in an almost fetal position, and I do want to shout out Barry Windsor Smith's pencils uh, in this. Yeah. Um, I, I find I don't always love, like, he's... His style does not always connect for me, but mm. like the high notes are so high when I look at an image yeah. of his and I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, and then there's some images that for me fall a little flat, but I still go back to like this, this opening image of like the, like the emotion that he has managed to imbue Storm's figure with um, as she's wrapped in these sheets and curled up. 
like you just feel everything you're supposed to feel <laughs> like whatever description mm-hmm. Claremont gave him. I feel like Barry Windsor Smith, like turned up to 11 uh, and, and presented <laughs> it in the, in this one panel. And so well done, Barry Windsor Smith. Um, Forge enters the scene, bringing tea for storm. We learn that Forge has brought storm to his rather ostentatious home in Texas. Everything is sci-fi tech and holograms uh, in the, in this place. Like it's all future tech. Uh, if you, if you can imagine that, like n- nothing is, is, uh is is basic <laughs> about forge's <laughs> house in any way um but storm is there but refusing to eat uh while he watches a holographic replay of the battle where storm was injured she comes out of her room and thanks him for his kindness but says he should have let her die so at the at the end of the battle after she gets hit with this she falls into a river and forge uh pulls her from the river and then brings her back uh to convalesce and she says that she wishes she had died in that river. Uh, Storm begins to spend more time with Forge and accepts a challenge to race him across the swimming pool. Storm's win wins, but is surprised um, to see as, as she gets out that he has left his cybernetic leg poolside. He explains that he was wounded in Vietnam. He says when he was wounded, he lost his will to live for a time, but he has found ways to move on. Storm sees that Forge has delivered a variety of clothes to her room. She puts on a fancy dress and comes down to the kitchen where Forge is cooking a meal. She is embarrassed when he is momentarily speechless at seeing her, and she goes back up and changes into more casual clothes over dinner preparation they drink champagne and forge tells her that he is cheyenne storm opens up about some past traumas that her parents were killed in a bomb blast that left her buried in rubble which is why she is claustrophobic then they share a kiss the phone rings and forge leaves to take a call from peter gyrick the man who took the experimental gun and shot storm with its blast storm decides that she needs to call the x-men to let her let them know that she is alive uh, but she overhears enough of forge's conversation to realize that he he's the one that designed the gun that hit her storm tries to leave but activates a holographic memory of forge when he was wounded in Vietnam, the room becomes like this, like imagine like the holodeck in Star Trek, the next generation, mm-hmm. um, even though that doesn't exist, but the room becomes a jungle in Vietnam. And she sees that he was wounded by friendly fire from a B-52 uh, bomber or B-53. I can't remember. I wrote 53, but suddenly I sounded wrong. Uh, lightning strikes the building uh, and it leaves a hole in the side, letting rain from the storm outside come through into Forge's super high-tech modern space. Forge tells Storm that he is not her enemy. The gun was never meant to actually be used. Storm asks why he built it in the first place. And he says, it was my job. Forge reveals to Storm that he's a mutant. His power is to design and build technology. This does not make Storm less angry that he built a gun to remove mutant powers. Uh, she she punches him and says, yeah. you live in your high tower, untouched, untouchable, surrounded by illusions, so terrified of the real living world, you cannot bear to violate the sanctity of your space, even with something as small as a flower. Your home is a true reflection of its creator, cold, cruel, sterile, and ultimately a deception, an ideal world wherein the master lies uh, and can feel safe and secure forge insists storm can trust him and he won't betray her she says to be loyal you must believe in something anything you are hollow from uh, you are a hollow form without substance you cannot believe because there is no you then storm leaves leaving uh forge standing alone in the rain presumably the, the thunderous applause <laughs> yes <laughs> oh and there's also a subplot <laughs> about dire wraiths trying to take over the world i'm not gonna worry too much about that it's only like five pages of story in there but but mostly you just find out rogue is alive and dire wraiths are infiltrating the united states government all right so andrew <laughs> uh i invited you on the podcast uh kind you know in, in reciprocation of you having me on your podcast <laughs> Yes. Uh, about Excalibur combo books, I said, well, well, I need you over on mine. And you gave a couple options. And one of them was Forge. 
Um, another one was Ilyana Rasputin, who is a great character, but I just felt like the background of explaining who Ilyana Rasputin is would have taken the entirety of the of the conversation. I'll come back and tape a three hour episode if you want. <laughs> uh, but what is it about Forge, and particularly this <laughs> issue, Life Death, that resonated with you? that you want to come talk about this character. There's so many things. Um, I don't know. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to like, like essentialize uh, and we can expand on like any of these um, that you're interested in. Um, <laughs> the big thing for me for forge initially is the representation of indigeneity, uh, which is deeply important because comics play a um, very strong role historically in perpetuating narrative stereotypes about um, native North Americans and indigenous people in general. And Forge pushes hard against those in some ways, not always, mm -hmm. if we talk about his later depiction. But there's some remarkable stuff happening there, um, stuff that was very important to Claremont um, and fits into a broader context there. Um, there's also the idea of um, I, I love the narrative structure of, of Forge as a protagonist because he's set up as this sort of. Um, heroic feel-good guy who brings in the wounded bird and is going to help her get back to health um, but but no that's not who he is he's he's gaslighting her you know what i mean so, so that inversion I'm, I'm seeing your protagonist be turned into the villain and it all kind of makes sense um by the end i find just beautiful um i i think there's some representation of disability in forge that's really mm -hmm. compelling and i think in general this is um, one of claremont's most innately flawed characters um, maybe even more so than the more famous ones, like, say, Magneto, um, who is going to execute one of the most beautiful face turns um, in the history of X-Men comics. Because everything that um, Storm accuses him of is true, or at least the vast majority of the details are occasionally a little wrong. But she ends this um, with the line, prove me wrong. And he does. Uh, over the course of X-Men comics. This was a big project for Claremont. So there's, there's a ton of things happening here. There's a lot of commentary on toxic masculinity. Um, just, I don't know. As you said, this is so out of character and tone for what was X-Men comics in this era. Um, we were talking before we started recording about how this was um, th like the dollar bin X-Men comic. You did <laughs> not struggle to find copies of Life Death at your local comic book store. Nobody liked it at first. But it's since become legendary and really definitive of a lot of the things that Claremont was trying to do with X-Men comics that he, he doesn't always get enough credit for. Because I think a lot of people just focus on the, you know, Wolverine's claws are cool and that guy who shoots <laughs> lasers out of his face is awesome. And his whole body becomes metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but like, again, like underneath it was some really intense psychodrama, e even Wolverine, um, not just sort of animal versus man thing. So yeah, no, I, I think there's there's a wealth of material happening here. I, I could talk about Forge for a very, very long time. Yeah, and, and like the first thing that comes to mind when you said you wanted to talk to Forge is this, um, I, I mean, Claremont does both. He both embraces some of the stereotypes about Native American portrayals, but he also very much goes against them. Uh, so a lot of Native American portrayals, historically in comic books, but also another X Men comic books that we're going to be getting are going to view uh, Native peoples as um, like their power bases, power bases being uh, more in touch with nature. You know, that's that's yeah. you know there, uh, and, and you know this inherent nobility, uh, like uncanny X Men. Uh, well, the first character to die in Claremont's run is a Native American character that is really leaning into a lot of stereotypes um, in in problematic ways. You go look back at it and you're like, mm, that is not a great portrayal. <laughs> Um, right there. Uh, certainly things could have been done with the character besides killing him off to avoid those. But that is, um, you know, the history of the X-Men is like we've had one Native American character at this point. I think it's only one, right? Because or has New Mutants been yeah. 
introduced yet. Soon he's going to, he's going to have some others. Um, but very frequently, uh, the, the idea of the, the noble savage is something that is being evoked in ways that are uncomfortable looking back on. And forge is very much future tech, like his space. Yeah. Uh, you know, his, his house is, um, is all about looking forward beyond where the, you know, the, the greatest advances of technology are capable because he himself is, uh, you know, pushing, uh, our understanding of, of everything about cybernetics, about, uh, technology, you know, all of that needs to step forward. And he is the, you know, a, a, a point for that. And Claremont does, uh, some of his, uh, future, uh, you know, visions of the future where Forge is going to be a key figure in the future of the Marvel universe as uh, I believe it's called Genesis. Am I getting that right? Yep. Uh, uh, you know, it, but it mean like the the, he's the origin point for technology and cybernetics and all these other things um, that are, <laughs> that are going to be uh, defining at least in Claremont's vision of the future of the Marvel universe uh, where things are going to go. And as you said, we have this introduction of him as a jerk <laughs> basically yeah. you know he's he is the villain like yeah he has mutant powers and he wants to identify as a mutant but he also is you know working for the government and but and making anti-mutant weapons uh for um you know the the uh peter gyrick who is one of the boogeymen for the, <laughs> the x-men worst. comics at the time yes the worst is probably the easiest way <laughs> to describe peter gyrick uh and and so it is this um really interesting like constellation of character traits and motivations like i said that I think some of the the aspects of his story that are going to feel maybe a little too stereotypical. I think Claremont is trying to honor some aspects of Native American mm-hmm. culture, and I don't know that it's entirely successful when he leans into some of those. Um, but I, I I think it is really fascinating to have this immediate contrast of so many past portrayals of Native American characters and have it be this very uh, futuristic oriented character in Forge. Yeah, I think that's the big contributing factor. We we do have Daniel Moonstar, who you were um, I'm suggesting. Um, already in existence in because new mutants had come out by this point right yeah it's pretty close actually but yes uh-huh. uh so moonstar is also cheyenne which i find really weird because like sh- there were not a lot of um, cheyenne people in the 1980s compared to other tribal affiliations mm-hmm. um I-, I guess he just liked that background or maybe he had some familiarity with it, some of the cultures and practices um mm-hmm. but yeah yeah claremont introduces us to um um, um thunderbird uh, he, he's sort of the writer on record. Len Wein creates Thunderbird. Yeah, the, the first X-Men. appeared in um, Giant Size X-Men, which is where the most problematic <laughs> aspects of his origin story exist. Yeah, and, and allegedly Claremont did not make the decision to kill him. Um, mm-hmm. That was already pre-decided, but Claremont did script his death. Mm-hmm. Um, so then later on, Classic X-Men, which um, is has these, these great backup stories. Classic X-Men comes out 1988-ish. Um, and, and Claremont throws in these additional stories that were set back in the original timeline. And he told a stunningly beautiful story about um, what John Proudstar's background um, and, and, and like all those stereotypes, Claremont sort of retrofitted them uh, and made them fit into a modern portrayal of, of indigeneity and cultural legacy in a way that I think is one of the most brilliant things he's ever written. Like exactly as you're talking about how Forge is defying stereotypes. Uh, he, he managed to take a character in John Proudstar who was really stereotypical um, and I don't know, c- connect him to a, a more modern indigenous existence, which is the big cultural contribution. Because when you see depictions of indigenous peoples in um, most comic books, they're like straight out of the 1800s. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, th- there's no consideration for the modern existence of indigenous people, um, which is obviously kind of a, a propaganda-ish thing to do because the modern existence has been defined culturally through you know oppression 
uh, and starvation and, and cultural annihilation and, and other great many atrocities. So it makes sense that you probably wouldn't want to you know, talk about those things. So instead, you just have your indigenous people show up with feathers and bow and arrows. Uh, and to this day, it pisses me off that Moonstar still fights with the bow and arrow. Uh, like like indigenous people discovered yeah. guns too when, when they came over you know what i mean it's a mm-hmm. much better way to hunt um so having forge as you said be that this tech expert have this playboy lifestyle um be an origin point i mean it's very similar to how afrofuturism works the idea of taking um cultural traits that are traditionally held as antithetical to futurity um or progress whatever you want to call it um, and suggest, you know, no, they're not. They're actually completely compatible. So Forge's portrayal is, is very, it's kind of like binty uh, in, in a lot of ways, or maybe even what, what Dom Kirby was doing with some of his Black Panther material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, another thing that you identified, uh, you, you referenced that he has a face turn, which I think that's a wrestling term, right? Where there's a heel turn it and face turn. Is. I hadn't <laughs> hang out with Chris Maverick too much. <laughs> yes. Heel turn would be when a uh, beloved character becomes evil for a wrestling storyline. Uh, Cause the heels are the bad guys in wrestling yeah. and the faces are the good guys. And so a face turn is when a bad guy aligns with, with the good guys and <laughs> it's uh, forge. You can tell Claremont is setting something up. You don't, devote this double-sized issue to a brand new character that you don't have a vision for where this character is going to go uh, but it's fascinating that um like all of storm's lecture like storm is right oh, yeah. <laughs> about everything uh, a lot of what forge has done is indefensible uh from her point of view and he's going to come to see her point of view but that's going to take you know years of comic book storytelling um, which I mean, the pace of comic book storytelling is, you know, 20 plus pages a month, you know, <laughs> you know, a little, so, so there's only so much you can do at a time. Uh, but it's a really careful evolution that when Claremont is in control of the X-Men titles, he is able to give, uh, give to, to forge. But, uh, it's not sometimes with comics, we get like the, the heel turn face turn. It is someone who is. Uh, you know, just completely evil becomes suddenly good just because the writer wanted them to be and it doesn't feel earned. <laughs> I think already at this beginning of Forge, there's enough sense of contradictions within him that it's not a shock that his motivations are going to shift uh, mm. and that he will become a good guy, even though at the moment we don't have the best version of, of Forge in front of us that's being given to us in this in this uh, in this particular issue. Yeah, exactly. I think what I really like about this is um, I don't think Claremont works too hard with the concept of Professor Xavier's dream. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that, that's more of a Stan and Jack concept. Um, but, but here he really surfaces it because he presents Xavier's dream as viral. Um, because what happens is, is Forge gets this, this momentary encounter with Storm, right? Uh, and it profoundly alters him, which I think a lot of us can relate to because Storm is just an amazing character. Um, oh, one of my and, favorite combo characters ever. I know the the depth, <laughs> and then um, sorry, I made a really like Disney character like giggle there. <laughs> I apologize. We can cut that out. <laughs> um, what ends up happening is is the X Men seemingly die, all of them, uh, and it's up to Forge, this this coward who the leader of the X Men decked and ran away from, and he's the one who's going to put the team back together. Uh, He's the one who's going to seek them out. He's going to give up everything he has uh, in order to do this because he's seen the dream and he he wants to be not a hero, but that hero. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think it really enhances this idea of um, the mission, let's say, 
of the X-Men. And as I said, how it stems from Xavier's dream, it, it brings it new life at a time when there, there's literally no X-Men, which is another thing that Claremont did that was really unusual. How do you have an X-Men comic without any X-Men? But he totally <laughs> did that. And, and another thing that I think is really interesting as far as Forge and his motivations is at the beginning of this issue, um, after he takes Storm the tea and she refuses and he's kind of like, you, you really have to eat and drink. He goes down and um, looks at footage of Storm, like in this holograph form from when she has all of her powers. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly kind of mesmerized with this vision of, you know, Storm in all of her, you know, full mutant goddess mode <laughs> of wielding the weather and everything. But the storm that that decks him and kind of cows him with her words is the completely depowered version of storm. And I think while this issue is definitely about forge and introducing us to, to him, it out, it also does quite a bit with storm Uh, Mm -hmm. and to kind of prepare the readers that storm without her powers is still, is still storm. (laughs) It's like, she feels uh, like, like she's less than what she was before, but like this, this monologue that she gives at the end and the fact that, we know, you know, because we know the X-Men comics, like she's going to go on and actually defeat Cyclops in a battle to be team leader. Like they're going to have a, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a battle that he says, you've lost your powers. You can't lead the team. And she's like, I'm still better than you without my powers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she wins the fight. She's right. <laughs> uh, and, and so like, it's, it's really interesting how much we get about storm uh, in, in this issue as well. Yeah. I, I think in some ways it's a, I don't know if I want to say a resolution so much as a major touchstone point in Storm's, um, we could say sexuality or or, or romance. Um, But Claremont very famously didn't give Storm any romances for Mm -hmm. a very, very long time. He was questioned about it at conferences and he would say, because no one's good enough for her. Right. Uh, We we had the Yukio thing um, not Mm -hmm. too long before this, which was a subtextual romance. Um, and now we have this thing taking shape. But, but in that scene you mentioned, Forge specifically says that, that she became more beautiful um, when she stepped out of the goddess attire and, and became that, that sort of um, punk representation. And, and I think that's what this is about. And that's how he works as a foil character for Storm is he connects her to her her humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's, what's really cool about that is like he does it in the sort of noble and heroic way by making her conscious of who she is as a human being and by seeing her as a human being, which is like, almost chivalric but at the same time he also quite literally connected to her humanity by building a gun that stole her mutant powers from her which is hideous so you've mm-hmm. got that delightful commingling of um um villain and hero uh even at the symbolic level and as you said like um, this is such a storm issue uh it's such an affirmation of who she is as a character and the extent to which her powers do not define her um mm-hmm. or maybe even more nuanced um, the extent to which she as a character has to fight being defined by her powers. Uh, so there's, there's a ton happening here. And I think it's really interesting as well that um, we have storm who is an African character and we have uh forge who is Cheyenne and we have his backstory involving being in Vietnam. I just feel like there's something that Claremont is playing with, with the idea of colonization and oh, yeah. uh, power structures. And then even the subplot, which I just really hand waved over in the summary is about, uh, you know, an outside force invading, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, trying to uh, like replace uh, identity um, is what, you know, we have with the dire Wraith saga uh, happening. And I, I don't feel like I have a great handle in just my probably two or three times I've read this issue and in exactly how I could elucidate what each one of those themes are, but it's, <laughs> it's just so clearly present here. 
you know, with particularly, I think, in giving Forge this backstory in Vietnam. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it also connects to um, um, that that classic X Men story about John Proudstar that I mentioned. Um, one of the ways that Claremont gets to a modern portrayal of indigeneity is through um, John Proudstar's service in Vietnam um, mm-hmm. and the trauma he came back with, um, which led to his suicidal tendencies. Um, Claremont retroactively says that Proudstar basically killed himself uh, um, back in ninety. 90- five i think it was issue 95 96 yeah it's uh, i think it's the second issue after giant size x-men yeah uh yeah so, so fighting count nefaria yes right? yes mm-hmm. iconic villain count nefaria <laughs> <laughs> but uh comes up all the time count yeah nefaria. <laughs> it's one of the greats <laughs> um, but uh yeah so so having forge um have been through that experience because um the vietnam war um, was an experience uh, that was very pivotal to indigenous people in America. Um, because again, you're being starved to death essentially, um, on reserve. So a great many signed up to fight, um, disproportionate to the white population as you would expect. Um, so, so connecting that to this, again, sort of darker element of American history, um, having forge, um, suffer from ptsd so he's, he's actually exploring um two forms of disability uh mm-hmm. we've, we've got the physical disability we've got the ptsd and then we have um storm's disability surfacing as well in the sense of the metaphorical disability that she's lost her powers and how that um explores the concept of disability uh compared to forge's literal portrayal um and also um just depression uh you mm-hmm. mentioned those those opening issues uh not the first splash page but the the panel sequence thereafter by windsor smith on page two like that's what I think of when I think of depression. You know what I mean? Like it, it's a perfect image uh, of Storm just unable to get out of bed, uh, unable to take an interest in her life. Um, so we're connecting all kinds of history and um, um, different forms of representation um, in, in ways that actually align with some important historical side notes. And I think also uh, that Forge's injuries, friendly fire, um, is is pretty sig- a pretty significant choice. Choice. Yeah. Yeah, again, this idea of um, um, him being used by the system, which defines mm-hmm. his modern existence as well, right? And then uh, even after that, still becoming a cog in the system, right? The, the, the system broke him, and yet it's still all that, at least the only path he sees at that moment. Yeah, and, and Claremont really intersects these things in ways that I find like almost confusing. Uh, so, so we've got th- this weird analog of um, mutanity and ing- indigeneity. Uh, so, for example, um, um, Storm accuses Forge of betraying their kind mm-hmm. uh, by working for the government and doing anti-mutant stuff. Um, but I mean, in indigenous cultural circles, of course, um, working for the government would be perceived as selling out as well. Uh, and Storm directly references that. She says, um, um, what else did you sacrifice with your heritage, uh, honor, decency, humanity? Uh, so, I, I, like, Claremont is really... Um, combining his metaphors in ways that is either messy or brilliant, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but they're, they're intersecting and compelling. And ways. also, like Forge, I, I don't have the issue right here in front of me, but he says something about like Storm asks him, like, "Are you are are you Indian?" I think is what she says, and he says, "I'm Cheyenne." Yeah. And she she says something. Like, I'm sorry if this is, is if this is too sensitive. And he says something like, "I'm proud of my heritage. I'm proud of who I was." Like that past tense to me yeah. feels very significant. <laughs> Uh, but, or, or like who I was doesn't define me now or something, something along those lines. But he, he definitely talks about his indigeneity in the past tense. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned that contradiction, right? Cause he says, I'm proud, but it doesn't mm-hmm. define me at all. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's right there. <laughs> yeah. And like, this will become a, a plot element for Forge moving forward. Um, he is um, a leader amongst his tribe, but he is um, 
actively avoiding his tribe uh, and doesn't really want to interact with them, but then he kind of does. So it's definitely setting up some stories that are going to be told in the future with regard to Forge's, um, let's say, tense relationship to his indigeneity. And it's one of those, as they explore that, it does become, or it starts to feel very much like an, an outsider portraying shaman shaman culture uh you know the american shaman culture in ways that i'm not sure are uh hitting all the respectful notes that maybe they should be no no and i've talked about this on the claremont run and i think i published something on it somewhere um on just how um there's this thing called the magic native uh, american trope Mm -hmm. uh which is a thing that that often happens it basically just means that your indigenous characters end up like being mystical somehow Mm -hmm. Um, comes up a lot and unfortunately most of claremont's indigenous characters will fall into it sooner or later and forge falls into it pretty hard uh you know eventually he's he's wearing a loincloth and and war paint and doing dr strange like hand signally things around a fire um because he's Uh, the chosen mystic of his tribe right mm -hmm. and that's disappointing um, yeah, and especially when cool. so much of our introduction to the character is again like let's let's break away from some of these stereotypes, yeah, uh, that have been overused. Um, and I can think of a handful of other X Men characters that are going to fall into the exact same tropes, <laughs> like you said. Yeah, uh, for um, whether it's uh, Native American uh, characters or even like Aboriginal characters when they're when they have their Australian era, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, where we go too often to that well. Yes, very much so. Um, so, so the, how I try to get around this, or not even get around it, but just, just sort of deal with it. Um, I, I believe that the first step to representation is simple presence, and then you improve it from there. Mm-hmm. And there was this list that um, Indian Country Today did about the um, top, I think it was the top 12 indigenous characters in Marvel Comics history. And something like seven of them were created by Claremont. You know what I mean? So, so, and so getting so, that presence is huge. Yeah. Building that foundation, even if you are going to fall into the pitfalls, which again is disappointing. Um, but other writers have come along and they've worked on Forge, some good, some bad. Uh, it really all depends on perspective. One other thing about this story that stuck out to me that I wanted to kind of talk through with you is the opening line, which presents it as a fairy tale where it says, um, once upon a time, there was a woman who could fly. Yep. That's, that's the quote. <laughs> Why do you think, that is how this issue is going to open. Like, what is the fairy tale aspect of this? Because um, it certainly does not end with a happily ever after. <laughs> well, I think that's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I still really want to applaud at the end of this issue. but mm-hmm. No, um... no. Like, I love the end of this issue. But when you go back to this opening line, it's like, mm, that does not, <laughs> that, that's yeah. not the uh, bookend of the classic fairy tale. <laughs> right. I, I think the the point of that opening narration is to sort of set up the subversion. Um, that the issue was undertaking, right? The idea of, um, I don't know, it, it's such a almost adolescent male, almost like like incel fantasy uh, of the beautiful untouchable goddess and you're going to nurse her back to health and she'll fall in love with you. Mm-hmm. And like Storm literally puts on the princess dress uh, yeah. at one point in this story. She comes down. And she's like, I feel like an idiot. I'm taking this off. And then she goes back up and she puts on coveralls. Um, I don't know. So so I I think a lot of the story is about setting you up to to see it as a romance. Like the title is Life, Death, A Love Story. Um, And then recognizing by the end of it that it is a love story, but but it's not 
that kind of love story. It's a mm-hmm. hyper realistic love story. Uh, it's about the barriers that separate people who may have a fundamental attraction to each other, uh, about the need for decency and the necessity of avoiding these sort of certain like toxic traps that we fall into. And I think stare or, or fairy tales are really emblematic of some of those toxic masculinity typologies that that i think forge undermines in this story and i think claremont signals that of course with with a punch um Mm -hmm. which is perfect that's that's a great way to do it in a superhero comic i think it is um like another aspect of this is um I think as readers, we don't, you're swept up in like the monthly, like, okay, here's the next issue. You pick it up and you start reading and it's just kind of like jumping in at a moment. But there is this fact that Forge and Storm have never met. Yeah. Uh, And he has brought her back to his house. (laughs) And she wakes up in his bed. Yeah. And I I don't think (laughs) we're supposed to read anything untoward, but it is this creepy. Like Forge has introduced (laughs) this level of intimacy that has not been earned. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's who he is, right? Like mm-hmm. she mentions this, he's, he's detached. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't have a good sense of any kind of social mores or expectations. He's just creeping on this pretty girl. Yeah. And pulling up like the holograph, yeah, the holodeck version, like LeVar or not LeVar, but uh, Jordy in some of the Star Trek Next Generation episodes. Yeah. It's like, oh, Jordy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then talking about like this constellation of of like contradictions that we see within forge so i i think there there is a side of him that is leaning into like this um performative masculinity mm-hmm. uh like, like almost a tech bro <laughs> kind of like, yeah. like what we see now but there's also the side that like storm comes out and he is like making the dinner like he is <laughs> and uh it, it's not he it, it's not all this kind of uh stereotype of a bad guy uh, that's present in there. And, and again, I think having all these layers is one reason why his redemption uh, doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere. Yeah. And I think if you, you just compare scenes, you can see some of those power dynamics shift. Like mm-hmm. in the, in the pool scene and just before scene, he, he's so in control and he's telling her what to think and he's telling her what's right and what's wrong. Um, and then in that dinner scene, he can barely talk either because he's just flabbergasted by storm. Right. Uh, and then in that, um, the final scene um, on the, the, patio or balcony whatever you want to call it um she's in complete control telling him off and she's right um so so he he's progressively taken down right scene yeah scene. And, and like the lightning bolt strikes the building and yeah. is, like normally that would be like storm's <laughs> doing this but we know storm doesn't have her powers like that's the whole whole or point here but it almost she? feels like mother nature taking her side you know yeah. right there yeah. in that moment and it is uh like now the water's gonna pour into like his he when he says like to check it's the weather, broken. he's like, press this button on the hologram and it will show us what the weather is like outside, but we won't actually have to deal with it. Like we don't have to feel it. Uh, it, it we see that moment earlier, but now like the weather is actually encroaching into, yeah. into his, his space. It literally bursts his bubble. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's perfect. I love that. Yeah. Th- there's a lot of really great, uh, like sometimes like the, the monologue, I, I read a lot of what storm says. Some of the subtext is text with Claremont. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's going to have characters like shout exactly what you're <laughs> supposed to be taking. But in terms of like learning about forge through the space that Barry Windsor Smith is going to draw, uh, and then having like the, the nature encroach into, into that space. Like that's just done really masterfully. Yep. 
and, and yeah. again, Barry Windsor Smith's art for this, I think is, it's just such a great match, uh, for, for this particular story, uh, this almost, uh, like it is a pause in, in the X-Men mm-hmm. story and Barry Windsor Smith was not the regular X-Men artist, um, at this time. And it, I mean, the, the cover, it, like you said, it says like life, death, a love story. It feels poetical and fairy tale esque. Uh, and I, I think having a unique art style really, um, hammers home that in a way that I don't think was terribly well received at the time. Like you said, this was the dollar bin special, uh, yeah. that, you know, the hardcore fans like read that and like, well, what was that? <laughs> um, but in, I find myself like, I'm, I like for my research, I end up writing about some of those curiosities, <laughs> like these weird side stories more so than like some of the mainstream stories, yeah. uh, where it's like, oh, you know, a creator's really just trying something. Uh, and it's not for everyone and maybe in the moment it doesn't work, but as you pointed out, like it, it's one that actually keeps people keep going back to, uh, you know, as, as a pretty significant chapter in Claremont's time on, in writing the X-Men. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's hardbound editions of life death still on the shelves. You know what I mean? I don't mean because nobody bought them. I mean, because they, they keep printing them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, Claremont back issues that are absolutely never going to get that treatment uh so so i don't know this is like he he was prolific he put out a lot of issues across a lot of titles yeah so so choosing the ones that last requires that sort of cult status and life death has that it has that cult status it's it's, it's a beautiful beautiful story well andrew are are there any other uh parts of either the story or forge or storm uh that you want to highlight before we wrap up this episode um well i think we were talking about um a lot of that, that that's effect on storm in terms of her um, disconnecting from the goddess and connecting to her humanity. Um, but the depth of that and the sort of reiteration of that yeah, in this issue is really cool. Like she, the things that forge connects her to um, learning how to walk, um, learning how to feel what it is to be cold, wanting to be liked by another human being, um, feeling nervous in the presence of another human being, craving approval, from another human being and having a desire to disclose um, who you are to another human being. Storm has never experienced that. Uh, All that happens in like four scenes in life death. Um, So it's a really sharp turn for that character. The the character who I'm guessing you would agree with me probably defines the Claremont run the most. Storm. So I I think a lot of people would say Wolverine, but for me, it's definitely they're wrong. Yeah, no, (laughs) it's definitely Storm. Um, So, so having that extent of a turn in this one issue, and to have it feel natural and organic, and to redefine the trajectory of this character moving forward, um, I I think this is arguably the pivotal Storm issue um, in all of X Men comics, maybe in the history of that character. Um, So, yeah, I, I think Forge. As much as I love Forge as a character, as a protagonist, his own right, as an antagonist in the story, he's all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's wonderful to see him function simultaneously as a foil or a cipher um, for Storm the way that he does in this issue and, and what that does in terms of helping us understand not just who he is, but who she is as well. Well, I think um, Storm definitely falls into some of those issues that we talked about with like uh indigeneity and mysticism and connection to nature yep uh in how she gets portrayed in giant size x-men number one especially um but in a, a lot of other aspects and this separation of her from that at the same time as we're being introduced to this native american character who is being very futuristic uh you know is, is a different path uh and 
what we what we do see is Storm, as you said, being grounded into her own humanity instead of the almost godlike status that she had had as uh, the you know the mistress of the elements and uh, you know the the wind rider and all the other titles that she has associated with her mutant powers. <laughs> now that's gone. Now who is she going to be? And what we end up seeing happen for Forge is the stripping away of his tech side, uh, and he's going to uh, discover uh, more of who he is from this point moving forward. Uh, we don't see that payoff as much in this single issue as we do for storm. Um, but I, th- I think it's really key for setting him onto that path. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's almost a charitable punch in the face. She gives him. <laughs> uh, it is. A, it's a great <laughs> final set of pages. Like I, I was reading, I, it, I'm like, I think I got to quote this whole thing. Those like, big vertical <laughs> panels too. Yes. Oh, it, it feels so like I love John Byrne, but it just feels so different from Byrne. It's so distinct to see Barry Windsor Smith, um, you know, or some of the other iconic, uh, you know, J- John Romita Jr. or some of the other artists that are going to be here at this time. It's still like you pick this up and you're like, oh, that that's this. This is Smith. <laughs> you know, this, this is Windsor Smith yeah. right here. <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming on. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think just um, um, you can Google me. Uh, I've, I've written a bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> other than that, just um, the Claremont Run social media feed, which is the project that I'm uh, I'm really working on right now and, and, and still very much in love with. I will also give a shout out to uh, the podcast you co-host, the Oh, oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow. Yes. The, what, what's the subtitle on that one? The Excal- an Excalibur? <laughs> I can't uh, Excalibur issue we're, we're doing like literally every Excalibur issue one week at a time right um, which uh, was a X-Men related series that was begun by Chris Claremont uh, with a group of mutants uh, based in England um, and oh it goes all over from there <laughs> like it is that's the starting point I don't know how to describe everything that's going to happen both under Chris Claremont's tenure and what comes after yeah uh, and we have um, um, Chris Maverick and Anna Papard who are two amazing comic scholars who are familiar to fans yeah. of your show as well yeah um, they've both been on doing glorious work um, and I believe several of the guests life. that you've had on as well <laughs> I've also been, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, there's a, a shared like uh, you know a group of, of guests that <laughs> that, uh, that go go around certain styles of podcasts, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Andrew. And thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Toffty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at this minute. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another character in a great story so long you know how it is (laughs) oh i do my students call me dr demon Yes, with with my last name Dorowski, <laughs> I've heard many variations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>